So on February 28th, 2010, I found myself at an impasse caught between a rock and a hard place. A little more than three years before, I stood in front of a judge, raised my right hand and said, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been subject or citizen, which started the oath that I took to become an American citizen. And yet that evening, I sat on a couch with a group of fellow Americans, all good friends, we watched the gold medal hockey game on the final evening of the Vancouver Olympics, a matchup between Canada and the United States. Here I was, recognizing that I belonged to these United States, surrounded by these fellow Americans, not to mention sitting next to my American wife, and yet there are few things that Canadians care about more than international hockey competitions. In particular, international hockey competitions against Americans on Canadian soil. <laughs> so there we were, it's overtime, and Jerome McGinley is battling for the puck on the boards, and he hears someone shout his name, so he finds a way to pass the puck out to a streaking Sidney Crosby, who in one single moment handed, handled the puck, backhands it between the legs of Ryan Miller, scoring the winning goal, securing a gold medal for Canada. And I have to tell you, I confess my heart sang. I confess when it comes to sports, my heart still resides north of the border. You can look on YouTube, just Sidney Crosby, Golden Goal, and you'll just see Canadians just talking about it decades later, celebrating the 10-year anniversary of that goal. It's a big moment for us. Now, you probably don't have that same problem that I do, but we all live with conflicting loyalties caught between two places. We're living in the liminal space between Jesus' ascension and his coming again in glory. And that frequently puts us in this difficult spot, living in tension between two kingdoms. See, our true citizenship is in heaven, and while that kingdom will never end, we spend our days living in the world that exists right now. And there will come times when we have to navigate the tension between these two kingdoms. So sometimes maybe we get so stuck being heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good, if you've heard that phrase. Or perhaps we end up so focused on the here and now that we forget that there is a day coming in which Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead and bring the fullness of his kingdom to reality, a kingdom that will have no end. And it's a difficult needle to thread. But I think that our passages this morning give us direction by encouraging us to be a sort of prophetic witness to the world around us, pointing to the world to come. And I'm going to use a little framework here, drawing wisdom from Micah 6.8, that we see something about doing justly, walking humbly, and doing mercy. So first, when we read from Amos, anytime we read from Amos, we see part of the prophetic witness of God's people is to pursue justice. To give a little background, Amos was a very unlikely candidate to be a prophet. He didn't come from a priestly line. He wasn't trained to be a prophet. He was just a farmer called by God to speak out to the king and kingdom of Israel by heading up to Bethel. He wasn't even in his home country. The kingdom had been divided. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, but God said, go to Bethel and go speak to the king. Now, God uses some prophets in the Old Testament to talk about Israel's unfaithfulness in their idolatry. But Amos was called to speak out about the unfaithfulness that comes from injustice. The scene he describes in this passage is people who show up to worship God on appointed feasts, it's the Sabbath, it's the new moon, but in their hearts they just can't wait for it to be over so they can go defraud others. 
So he says this, he says, they're making the shekel great and the ephah small. And he's talking about false scales. So in trade, they would manipulate the weight so that you could manipulate your prices. The result would be sort of like paying 90 cents for a dollar's worth of product and then selling it for a buck and a quarter. So you're manip manipulating which you use to buy, which you use to sell. You're making a profit out of all of it. Now, this practice was actually common enough in other nations that other nations around Israel also had laws against it. I believe you can find examples in Hammurabi's code, for instance, how you shouldn't be doing this. So this isn't just breaking like unique Israel commandments. This is breaking laws that were obvious to anyone trying to create a society. And it's not just a matter of a few bad actors. These kinds of practices we discover as we read Amos, they're so rampant that they created an entire system that oppressed the poor. Systems that created poverty and held people in it. So other parts of, of Amos, the prophet says that there isn't even justice at the gates. That's where their court system. You'd go to the gates and you'd try and sort of argue your case among the elders. But even there, you could not correct these abuses of power. And so everything is stacked against the poor and in favor of the rich. And the result we see in verse 6, that the rich are buying the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and selling the chaff, selling the sweepings of wheat. This is creating a slavery system within Israel. And so Amos says that when you worship God while perpetuating this system or even turning a blind eye to it, that worship is no longer pleasing to God. Here's what he says. I'll read it again. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on all loins and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, speaking or seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There are two kinds of disasters he's talking about. There's the, the, the sort of cataclysmic turn your feasts into mourning, this, this sort of general famine. But then there's also the famine coming for the word of the Lord. In the same way that the poor looked for justice but could not find it, Israel would look for a word from God and they would not find it. The prophetic witness of the people of God is not just to let broken systems stay in place, but it's to name them and call people to repentance. Sometimes there are people who are actively choosing oppression, people who know better and say, I will willfully harm the poor. Sometimes greedy people simply do not care. You, you can't serve two masters, and when you're serving money, you find all kinds of other things get in the way. But in either case, when the cards are stacked against the poor, that's where the church finds its voice. And sometimes that witness isn't just found in words, speaking out against injustice, but in living lives that lean into the ways of the world to come. And just like speaking truth to power has a cost, living life according to kingdom principles has a cost as well. If everyone's using false scales to make profit, if everyone buys cheap and sells high, honest trade that honors human beings will be less profitable. Let's be clear, centuries ago, although not as long ago as we might like, the transatlantic slave trade was very profitable 
and to buy cotton not picked by slaves cost you more. But one of these options was more just. One of these options was better. Giving up advantages and privileges that you have in order to lift others up can literally cost you, but our witness for justice demands that we are willing to lose some of what we have so that the world looks more and more like the kingdom of God where injustice has no place. Justice might mean, especially those of us who have what some call privilege, what others might call advantages, if you are doing well and others are not, sometimes a more just system means you might have a little bit less. God doesn't always call all of us to immense prosperity. That's a tough word, and it's tough to look and find out what it is, but I truly believe that's the kind of thing God calls us to. Now, to balance the zeal that we might have for justice, especially as you discover it, our witness must also be humble. So 1 Timothy is the first of two letters that Paul sends to his protege, Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. So it's largely a letter of advice from pastor to pastor. Leading a church in the first century must have been incredibly difficult. You were preaching the good news of how King Jesus, who's king of the whole world, has changed everything. Roman rulers are not very interested in changing everything. They're pretty interested in keeping the status quo and keeping peace among conquered people. So the more enthusiasm that your church might have, saying this King Jesus is Lord, the more you might be showing up on Roman radars. You might get a few more random searches in that scenario. Now, my adolescent world, when I was a teenager, was defined by punk rock. This is a music known for its rejection of the status quo, calling out hypocrisy and decrying broken systems wherever they might be found, saying loudly, sometimes angrily, that the emperor wears no clothes, right? This is, this is where I found my voice as a teenager. So this call that Paul tells Timothy to offer requests, prayers, and intercessions for all people, even for kings and for all who are in authority, oh, that sounds like a sellout conformist thing to do. Pray for everybody in authority. Pray for the emperor. You mean that despot who's holding the people under his thumb, claiming that the offers of peace that Rome gives at the end of a sword is true peace? Pray for that guy? Yes, Paul says. Pray exactly for that guy. And Paul's not the only one. This passage, this idea reads like a throwback to another time in Israel's history when they lived under someone else's rule. So when Israel was in exile, torn away from their promised land, torn away from the temple where they could faithfully worship God, they lived in Babylon under pagan kings. And they wanted to return, and there were false prophets who were saying, yeah, you're going to return soon. Don't worry about it. But Jeremiah comes and says, not so fast. And in Jeremiah 29, we read this, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Even in exile, even in this punishment in some other place, God's people weren't called to see themselves as isolated from the Babylonians, but were told to identify with them. Think of their welfare as Babylon's welfare. These are the same thing. It's only four verses later that God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper. That's the context. 
you're stuck in Babylon, identify with them, care for your neighbor there, look for their welfare. This is, and in a similar fashion, Paul reminds Timothy that God desires all to be saved. So the prophetic witness we have is for justice, yes, but we do so in humility, refusing to see anybody else as definitely other. We have no idea how God might change hearts. And so the call to speak out against injustice can tempt us to start seeing and demonizing other people. But that leaves out that God loves everybody. Paul here is telling Timothy to pray for everyone, especially the leaders who are a threat to the very existence of the church. If you think there's a political leader now who is hostile to Christianity, none of them compare to the Romans. Babylon wasn't the true enemy of Israel, and the Romans weren't the true enemy of the church. And those who do wrong now are not the true enemies of our church. The real enemy is that which will be finally defeated, death itself. And those around us who are also subject to death are never truly our enemies because, <coughs> excuse me, because God desires their well-being as well. And in humility, we pray for them because we're not called to take over governments. We're not called to be violent political revolutionaries. We aren't called to be rulers who force God's will on people. God can and has and will do remarkable things on his own. Paul himself is testimony to how God's going to change hearts however he chooses. Our job is to be prophetic in humility, as Paul says, so that we may, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Now, to comfort my inner adolescent punk rock self, the work that Paul calls us to here is not giving in. This call to humility and prayer for those in authority is still keeping our priorities straight because we're interceding to the one who has real authority. We pray for these leaders recognizing they are simply stewards and there is a true king. Never lose sight of the fact that the New Testament was written in a time when the Caesars were explicitly calling themselves sons of gods, saviors, and lords. And so when Paul says, pray to the true savior, pray to the real son of God, he's pointing out what the prophetic witness looks like. I'm going to pray for you, Roman Caesar, because even though you think you are in charge, you are not, and I desire your welfare because God desires your welfare. Our prophetic witness pushes back against their claim, but not on their terms. Rome is used to people challenging their authority by violence, and the church says, no, I'm not going to play by your rules. This is not the game we play because we know who's already won. We live into a kingdom that is coming by praying for them in humility. So our prophetic witness as the church must call for justice. It must do it humbly. And lastly, it has to prioritize mercy. Now, the parable we read this morning is notoriously difficult to interpret. <laughs> I mean, just think, what does it mean that this dishonest manager is praised? Why should we make friends by unrighteous wealth? The number of rabbit holes we can go down are many. Um, and I spent a lot of time trying to dig through all the rabbit holes. One commentary will say, well, look, and they'll lay it all out, lay out all the options and say, look, so given all this, X is clearly true. And you look at another commentary and they're like, as you can see, X is false and Y is clearly true. And so you're stuck with many people way smarter than you having done way more work than you have 
saying conflicting ideas. But I want to give you what I think is the best reading and I think is pretty common to what people understand here. But understand we're on a little bit difficult ground. I think before I get to the meaning, part of what makes this challenging is the very nature of a parable, right? A parable isn't like a fairy tale with the moral of the story is. Parables are indirect communication that, that startles us. One writer, Klein Snodgrass, who wrote a book on the parable, says that they deceive hearers into truth. The aim, he says, is to waken insight, stimulate the conscience, and move to action. They're meant to be analogies that persuade us to live in a certain way, painting pictures that help us know how to act. In the same vein, there's a Jewish biblical scholar named Amy Jill Levine who points out that parables are less about what they mean and more about what they do. And what they do should unsettle us. If we hear a parable and think, oh, I really like that. There's no challenges there, and I feel really comforted by that. We've missed something. Parables are meant to challenge us, to unsettle us. So let's get a little bit unsettled here. Jesus tells a story of this manager about to be fired, who is claimed to be dishonest, who goes around and settles all his master's debts, or his master's debtors, by decreasing their bills in order to make friends. That's his whole goal. I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. I gotta find some friends here. And then the master praises him for his wisdom, and Jesus says, well, this is because the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light. So I think one of the best readings of this text is that Jesus is encouraging his disciples and us to keep our eyes on both kingdoms, the kingdom of this age and the kingdom of light, being wise with what we have now, recognizing that the kingdoms of this world, though, are surely passing away, keeping an eye on the kingdom that is to come. Having eyes on the tension between these kingdoms means recognizing which one is actually going to last. What does it mean to be wise and shrewd with money now? What does that look like? So I don't think this parable gives us particular action steps. I don't think we read this parable and say, I know what to do, get a job in financial planning, and, and defraud my employer in order to make friends. Please do not get that message. But I think instead it prompts us to live lives marked by generosity and mercy. I think noting that these are debtors is not insignificant. The dishonest manager isn't commended for his dishonesty, but he chooses mercy. He says, how much do you owe? Let's settle it for something cheaper. Jesus speaks of making friends by dishonest wealth, literally unrighteous mammon, so that when it's gone away, they may welcome you into eternal homes. He's speaking ill of the value that wealth will play in our lives and prompting us to use it in such a way that we'll have eternal benefits, investing not in earthly rewards, but in heavenly ones. You do this by being generous. I think this matches well with the parable that Jesus tells of the man who has this huge harvest. He's like, what am I going to do? I know I'm going to build a second barn and I'm going to live it easy and I'll tell myself soul will be doing well. He dies that very night. God calls him a fool because he wasn't generous. It's a prompt to see that when God gives gifts, he gives them to us so that we might bless others. The end is coming. This age is passing away, and so we should use the resources that we can use now wisely. When we find ourselves in situations where we can offer grace and mercy, we should act 
like our God whose character is always to have mercy. We have the, this thing, this sort of nuclear thing called wealth, right? Nuclear power is great. Nuclear bombs are terrible. Nuclear fission can do all kinds of good and it can do all kinds of evil. And so we have to treat it like that, like a thing that could poison our lives, but instead could bless others. That's why we have these things. So this, this toxic thing we have called wealth, instead of seeing it as great, I can possess this, we say, okay, God has given this to me. What does it look like for me to give more of it away? What does it look like for me to have mercy? What does it look like for me to see needs and try and alleviate them? That's the direction that God uses blessings. It's the way that he blessed Israel so that, so that they might bless others. That's how God works. In his wisdom, and sometimes it doesn't always feel like wisdom, he's chosen to bless the world through people. He started with Israel, and now it's the church. And so now we say, what does it look like for us to take what we have and see needs and bless others? So as we live in the tension of these two kingdoms, we have this chance to be a consistent prophetic witness to a different kingdom, speaking and showing the kingdoms of this world what the kingdom to come is marked by. It's marked by justice and mercy and humility. But right now, I think my sermon has been a weight. It is a heavy burden telling you everything you should be doing. I don't know if you felt this way already, but in preparing for this sermon, as I'm energized by the vision of it, I'm discouraged by how my life is so far from this vision. It's very easy to stand up here and be like, this is what a perfect life looks like. I'm going to go and sit on the couch all afternoon and not do any of it. <laughs> That's what it feels like, and you prepare, and you can be motivated by this vision and yet find yourself un unsure of how to start. It's, it, this can be all law and no grace, right? And I don't know everybody's story in here, but I know that when I look out, there are people who are themselves burdened by the weights of this world, who have their own crises that they're dealing with. I know that no one in this room is not themselves affected by sin, by sin that they perpetuate, by sin that they're the recipient of, by broken situations that you don't know the way out. And so for me to say, great, now go out and be a perfect witness to the kingdom that is to come would be just law and no grace. So let me offer some encouragement. The way that we embody this prophetic witness is not to try and do it all ourselves as individuals, but to lean on each other as the church. So Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite writers, wrote in his book, Resident Aliens, this about what it looks like to try and live according to the ideals of the Sermon on the Mount, another long list of ways that we ought to live. He says this, only through membership in a nonviolent community can violent individuals do better. The Sermon on the Mount does not encourage heroic individualism. It defeats it with its demand that we be perfect even as God is perfect, that we deal with others as God has dealt with us, which leads us to say that we are not advocating community merely for the sake of community. The Christian claim is not that we as individuals should be based in community because life is better lived rather than alone. The Christian claim is that life is better lived in the church because the church, according to our story, just happens to be true. The church is the only community formed around the truth, which is Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, only on the basis of his story, which reveals to us who we are and what has happened in the world, is true community possible. 
Amos may have been a single prophet, but the New Testament picture of this witness isn't through courageous individuals or even courageous families who come together once a week to be charged up to go out and do their own thing, but through a new family called the church. It's here that we're called to work out our prophetic witness. So what does this look like? Well, I don't want to give you a specific action point because I don't believe I have the word to tell everyone here what to do because I think it's more of a process. But let me try and paint a picture of what I think it might look like for a community to be faithful to this call to be a prophetic witness. Imagine if we were so in tune with the needs of the world around us that we knew where there were gaps in the system. We knew where poor people fell through the cracks, where people were being taken advantage of. Imagine if in prayer we found the places where our gifts and the world's needs met so we could reach out and bring justice. What if we consistently prayed not just for our national leaders, which we need to do, but that's a place where we can get distracted by political theater. But instead, what if we prayed for the board of trustees of Copley Township and the mayor of Fairlawn? What if we learned the names of the school board members and the fire chiefs around us and we prayed for them? There's a national movement for people to start caring about school boards, but it is typified by people who are angry. It is not typified by people who have learned the names of their board members and said, I am praying for you. And I want you to know that I am praying for you because I love you and God loves you. That's a different kind of witness, isn't it? I confess, I thought of this idea and I was like, I don't know any of the names of any of these people. So I started to look this up. I didn't even know that Copley was governed by a board of trustees and that Fairlawn, where I live, has a mayor. I didn't know these things. Now I know. Now I know names and faces and I can start praying for them. What if we are praying for them so much that our little slice of the northeast corner of Ohio might see God at work through their wise leadership? What if we started with the assumption that God loves each and every one of them? I can tell you this, this is one practical step. You can start praying for bus drivers and substitute teachers in the Copley Fairlawn School District. They are having to constantly, every day I get an email from either Simon or Luke's principal that the bus routes have to be changed. They ask parents to volunteer to say, I'm not gonna use the bus because they have so few bus drivers. Pray for substitute teachers. With all of the political conflict about education right now, we're in a rough spot for recruiting teachers who do not like the idea of going to school and having parents very angry at them. Whether that anger is righteous or not, the reality is we currently are, have a shortage of teachers and we're about to have a greater shortage of teachers which means we need more substitutes and we have a shortage of substitutes. And so our kids in our community, at the school that we pay into so that we can care for them and give everybody an education, are currently at risk. So what if we dedicated ourselves to praying for that, for that school across the street that currently is desperately in need of substitute teachers? That's a place we can start. And what if we looked for opportunities to show mercy, to be gracious, to find ways to shrewdly and wisely connect with folks around us to bless them. Not to enhance ourselves with earthly connections, but to enhance the lives of others. We're stuck in the middle. We're stuck in the middle of two kingdoms, sometimes with conflicting priorities, but I pray that we are allowed, or that we allow, the kingdom of heaven to dictate the ways in which we live in the kingdom of earth. Not just the things that we care about, but the ways that we care about them, and the way that we witness to the world that God cares about them. 
as we share our lives with each other here and look as a community to the world around us, may God use us to be a witness to the kingdom that is to come. May we be a witness to a kingdom that is different, that not only cares about different things, but plays by different rules. It is in the church that we can support each other to be an outpost of the kingdom that is to come. We can pray together about where we're called to speak about injustice. We can pray together for those around us, open to whomever God might be saving, and use the blessings that we have, whatever they may be, to show mercy and generosity to others. May God make this place an outpost, an embassy that serves as a prophetic witness of his kingdom. Amen.